Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Psalm 51. As we continue our series in the Psalms, recently someone attended one of our services here at CPC and they asked a great question after the service about the liturgy. And their question was, if we're Christians, if we're already saved, why every single Sunday, every single service, do we confess our sins again and receive God's forgiveness? That's a fantastic question to ask. Why as a Christian would you continue to confess your sins if Jesus has already forgiven them? And I answered that question in two parts, and it brings us to Psalm 51. The first answer to that question is, we confess our sins because Jesus tells us to confess our sins. Right To his group of disciples, he teaches us how to pray, and part of that prayer is, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us, our debtors. So Jesus calls us to ask for regular forgiveness for our sins, and the rest of the Bible picks up that theme. That happens in 1 John 1. Don't say that you don't have sin. Confess your sin, and God will forgive you. That happens in James chapter 5. When we're instructed as a church, don't just confess your sins to God. Confess them to one another and be accountable to one another. And it happens in places like Psalm 51. This is one of seven psalms that talk about confessing and repenting of our sins, even if we're believers, and receiving God's forgiveness. So the first answer to that question is we confess our sins because Jesus tells us to do that. And the second answer to that question is why Jesus tells us to. And that is because when, even as a believer, even as a person whose sin is completely covered in the gospel, we go and confess our sins again and again to him and receive the assurance of our forgiveness, there is refreshing and restoring power in that forgiveness. Didn't we see that last week in Psalm 32, where where the psalmist comes in utter despair about his sin, and as he confesses it to the Lord, he's restored, and he finds delight in the Lord. That's exactly what's going to happen in Psalm 51, where a believer is going to move from utter guilt and despair into the joy of their salvation. Christian confession, it doesn't make us more saved. It doesn't make us re-saved. It restores the joy of being saved. That's what this pattern in our life does because a Christian who doesn't confess their sins on a regular basis is in danger of leaving the gospel at the door of the kingdom. We got into the kingdom. We came a believer through the gospel. We trusted John 3.16, that God loves the world, that he gave his only son. We trust in him and we'll have everlasting life. We believed that at one point. If we continue on our lives without confession, we leave that gospel at the door and we start operating on some other kind of agreement with the Lord. What is that? That won't do. What Jesus wins us with He wins us too. There's no bait and switch with him. The gospel that gets us into the kingdom is the gospel that keeps us in the kingdom. And Psalm 51 for the Christian becomes one of the preeminent places in the Bible where Christian confession meets forgiveness and the the joy of our salvation is restored. With that in mind, I want to read from Psalm 51, and I want to read the first seven verses where we're going to spend most of our attention. Let's hear God's word together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let's pray together. Jesus, teach us what this means today to get access to what it means to confess our sins as Christians and as non-Christians here this morning. We have to be brutally honest with sin. And I pray that you would give us courage to do that. You can do that by your Spirit. And so we ask you boldly in your name, we pray. Amen. You know, as we open up Psalm 51, we see an editor's note that guides us to what is happening in David's life when he writes this psalm. And the editor's note tells us that this is after Nathan has confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. Now, anybody with even just a small familiarity with the Old Testament and David, King David, probably knows two things about him. We know that he slew Goliath, he killed the giant, and that was one of his greatest triumphs. And we also might know that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's one of David's greatest failures. Now to get into the context of this psalm, I went back to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and that retells the story of David and Bathsheba and then being confronted by Nathan. And the danger for somebody who's read that story many times is we can become overly familiar with that story. And that's a danger. Because you open up 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and there is a gruesome, awful story about a man who we perceive to be one after God's own heart, the king of God's people. You might know this story well, that that 2 Samuel 11 opens with saying, this was the time when kings went off to war, and David, who had done that for most of his career and seen God's success, doesn't go to war. He doesn't. Instead, he is home idle while he sends Joab, his field commander, out. And in David's idleness, he finds himself on the rooftop and he spots this beautiful woman, Bathsheba. Now, sometimes we paint her as a temptress, but all she's really doing is she's in the privacy of her own home and she's doing a ritual washing according to the Levitical law. Well, David sees her, he's intrigued by her, and he sends messengers to find out about her. Ultimately, he brings this woman who's a married woman, whose husband is serving in David's army on the battlefield. He brings her into his house. And you have to begin to read between the lines in 2 Samuel 11, because initially Bathsheba is probably flattered to be invited to the palace for any reason, to be known by anybody of importance and to come and to see the palace and all its magnificent. Somewhere in this story, servants lead the room, the doors are locked, and Bathsheba is left alone with the most powerful man in the world. Is she willing at this point? Does she want to do this? Is she horrified about what's about to take place with her? Her life is in her hands, and she sleeps with David. And she's sent home right away. 
No communication between them until she finds out later that she's pregnant. And once again, her life is in her hands because will David acknowledge that this is his child or will he leave her to appear to be an adulteress because her husband is away. She couldn't have this child by anybody else except another man. She sends a note to David and David has a plan. He brings Uriah back from the battlefield and he tries to trick this man of war. He tries to to get him to sleep with his wife and he won't do it. And when it doesn't happen through lies, he gets Uriah drunk. This very man that he should be leading in spiritual ways, he gets him drunk and tries to send him home and he won't do it. And he resolves to a last resort. David writes a death sentence over Uriah and he seals it in an envelope, and he hands it to Uriah himself and says, deliver this message you don't know about to your commander and have him do its context. contents. David, uh, Uriah must go to Joab and hand over his own death sentence. And when he does that, Joab obeys. And Uriah is sent for the, to the front line. His men pull back, and Uriah is killed. Bathsheba mourns, David brings her into the house, marries her, and they have a child together, and that child dies. Now this all happens over the course of nine months, of course, when Bathsheba has the child. David doesn't mention this sin to anyone. When Nathan appears to him one chapter later, it's almost a year's time that has passed, and David has so covered his own sin, he's shocked when Nathan turns around and points the finger at him. That's not even on his radar at the point when Nathan confronts him. When I read these two chapters, I'm really struck by two things about the sins in David's life. I'm struck by how much damage sin does. Obviously, this sin affects Uriah and Bathsheba and the child that's born to David and Bathsheba. But think about the concentric circles of damage that radiate out from sin. Think about all the people who are affected. Uriah had a family. Bathsheba had a family. Uriah had an army unit of men who served under a great and wonderful commander. All of these people are affected by this sin. Think about the people who served in David's palace who were sent on dirty errands. They went and inquired about Bathsheba. They brought her in. They locked the door and left the two of them alone. Less than nine months later, they bring her into David's house to wed. Do you think those servants of King David ever looked at their king the same again when he got up to lead his people in worship? Just just watch sin and its poison radiate out from the actual act of sin. And the second thing that is so striking about this is how personal this sin is to God. How personally he takes the sin that is being displayed and demonstrated by these people involved and by David. When Nathan comes to confront him, he says to David, you have despised the word of the Lord. You have despised the Lord. You have, quote, utterly scorned the Lord. The things you have done behind closed doors are things that you have personally done against God. Friends, when we come this morning and we open up Psalm 51, our worship leader this morning and the song that he writes for our worship all adds up to a thief, a liar, a sex addict, an adulterer, a betrayer, one who would desire to leave hidden sins lay hidden. He is the man who is going to lead us into worship this morning, and the Lord desires to teach us from this very thing. 
the reason we're spending so much time talking about this backstory, the reason we're painting sin in such bold strokes is because Psalm 51 comes to us this morning in the same way it comes out of David, and that is a bold, a bold invitation for you and I to come out of the darkness and into the light. All of us, you look at a room this big, and and it amounts to a deep and wearying sin that is represented in all of our lives. All of us have things that have remained covered in our lives. There are some of us in this room who have things that are so deep and dark, we would rather die than for somebody to know the sin that's in our heart. Some of us are so strangled by our sin. Its roots have grown down so deep and gripped our soul so powerfully that we despair that we will ever, ever change in this life. And then there are some of us who have come in this morning who don't even see the sin that's in our life. It doesn't even show up on our radar. We don't even think about the big deal that it is to us. And that's our greatest weakness. All of us in this room represent a world of sin together. And we need to hear, like David hears, that this sin creates concentric circles of damage in our life. There is no such thing as a personal and a private sin that doesn't affect another person. We can't indulge in greed in our private life and then walk around as a compassionate, self-giving person in our public life. We can't indulge in envy and jealousy and and slander people and gossip, and then be a life-giving person to other people around us. We can't indulge in lusts of the flesh, and then become a self-giving partner to another person. There is no such thing as a personal and private sin that does not let poison radiate from itself and affect the people who are around us. And the second thing that we learn that David is learning is how deeply this sin in our life is personal to the living God. God says that he's like a shepherd in John chapter 10, and he calls us out by name. And when we say no to the shepherd, we despise the word of the Lord. When we make up this world in our minds where this sin is just between me and myself and it has nothing to do with God, just by carving out a world that's apart from the living God who made us and wants to know us and be known by us is to scorn him to his face. Jesus is calling us to follow him. And when we say no and run the other direction, whether it's for shame or for pride, we utterly scorn the Lord. You and I do that. There's not a person, a human being in this room, in this city, who has not scorned the Lord to his face, whether we're not a believer yet or we are are a believer. All of us have done this. All of us are guilty before a living God. It's only when we see sin for what it truly is that we can begin to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. This is what David is doing in Psalm 51. Unlike Psalm 32 that talks about repentance and how to do confession and how it works, Psalm 51 becomes 
our vocabulary for confession. Psalm 51 becomes the script that we take to God and use in our confession. And David is brutally honest when he confesses his sin. You're going to watch him plea for forgiveness in the first six verses. And then you're going to watch him pray for this joy and this restoration in the rest of the psalm. And I want us to pay particular attention to that first half. Look with me at his plea for forgiveness. Watch how sin self-conscious David is in verse 3. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It wasn't always that way for David. David spent a year covering this sin with Bathsheba, but now his transgression is before him. And he uses three words to describe his wrongdoing. He talks about transgression. That's a Hebrew word that simply means rebellion. So this is the child, according to the fifth commandment, who's rebelling against their parent. This is the citizen that's rebelling against those who are in authority over them. To transgress is to rebel against the authority in our life. He also calls what he's done sin. Now, sin in its non-theological context means to miss the mark. There's a target on the wall, and sin is to miss it. So I don't know if you've been to Kenny's house to play darts in his backyard. If you do that, there's a whole lot of sinning going on in his backyard, in every sense of the word. No, I'm just kidding. Um, It's to miss the mark. In Judges chapter 20, you have 700 Benjaminites who are left-handed stone slingers, and they could throw a stone at a hair and not sin. They don't miss. They hit their target every time. Sin is to see God's good creation and what he has designed for our lives, and it's to miss it every time in the way we order our lives. The last word he uses is iniquity. And literally, this means bent out of shape. Some translate when they see iniquity in the Bible, I'm all bent. What a powerful description of sin. Sin is a grotesque disfiguration of the life that God intends for it. It, it, It's missing the mark. It's living a life that, that falls short of the glory of God. It rebels against the authority in our life. You know, I've always been fascinated by the polygraph test. This is a lie detector test where you can hook somebody up to a machine and you can test with a bunch of different sensors things about them, their heart rate, their perspiration, their blood pressure. You can ask them questions And with some measure of accuracy, you can tell whether this person is lying. The only reason that test can exist in this world is because our bodies were not built to lie. We're doing something with our mind and our mouth when we tell a lie, but our whole body is physically reacting because we are bending ourselves out of shape. We're doing something that we weren't created to do, and even a scientist with a couple of sensors can see this person is torn within themselves because they weren't made to do this. This is not how a body reacts to things. So David, seeing this sin in his life, seeing this transgression, seeing this iniquity, throws himself on the mercy of God. If you're not sure where to begin in repentance, where to begin in confession, what to say, how to do it, pick up Psalm 51, start in verse 1, and read with David, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's where we begin with our confession. We begin with David, understanding the grotesque disfiguration of our sin and throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. 
Now, when David is writing Psalm 51, I want us to see that the entire book of Exodus is very much on David's mind. David is interacting in his mind with the entire book of Exodus as he writes this, and we should be too as we think about confessing our sin. David, in the verse we just read, is appealing to God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. You know where David learned that? You know where he learned that he can bank on that kind of thing? He learned that from Exodus 34. That's a powerful story in in the Exodus story in which God stands and passes before Moses and declares his name to Moses. And this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's our three sin words. David is appealing to this kind of God. He's heard of abundant mercy and steadfast love in Exodus, and now he appeals to those things. Any way you read Exodus 34, that's one of the most beautiful passages in our Bible. You can't read the abundant mercy and steadfast love of God in any context and not be overwhelmed by the kind of God we serve. But you take Exodus 34 and you put it in its context And it gets very real and very personal very quickly because Exodus 34 is not happening at a time that Israel has done everything right. It's not happening at a time where the people of Israel are serving and loving and worshiping the living God. Everything up until this point has gone wrong with the people of Israel. I mean, think about their short history with their God. They are enslaved in Egypt, and when Moses tells them that Yahweh is here to deliver them, they doubt that Yahweh can do what he says he can do, and they don't want to appeal to Pharaoh to be let go of Egypt. They sin, they transgress the Lord. Finally, they're brought out of Egypt, and God, in the Passover, displays his incredible power and mercy for them, and they make it as far as the bank of the Red Sea, and Egypt begins to pursue them, and they doubt God once again. They say, were there not enough graves in Egypt that we couldn't have been buried there, Moses? Why did you bring us out here to die? And they doubt the Lord again. God displays his power. He parts the Red Sea. Israel passes through. No sooner than they're through that they realize they're thirsty and there's no water to drink and they grumble against God. Why would you bring us out here? thirsty and hungry. And at the waters of Merah, God must provide for them again so that they can drink. And then no sooner does that happen than he gives them manna and they break his very simple instructions. I want you to collect this for six days and have enough for Sabbath so that you don't have to work on the Sabbath. And the people of Israel completely disregard that and walk out on the seventh day and there's no manna. And God says, must I strive with these people forever? What are they doing? And then in Exodus 20 and beyond, their greatest sin to this point, Moses walks up on Sinai where the visible presence of God is in thunder and lightning and fire, and he is receiving the Ten Commandments and the covenant that God is making between himself and the people of Israel. And what are the people of Israel doing? They create two golden calves, and they bow down in the presence of the living God to two man-made idols, and they worship. 
everything has gone wrong for Israel. They have despised the word of the Lord. They have utterly scorned him. And after all of this happens, God takes Moses, he puts him in a cleft, he passes in front of him, and he says, Moses, if there is one thing you could know about me, if there's just one thing I could tell you and convince you of, it's this. I'm abundant in mercy. My steadfast love is forever. I forgive iniquity of thousands and I forget their transgressions forever and ever and ever. If there's only one thing you can take down from this mountain, take this. I'm a God who loves my people. I'm a God who forgives their transgressions and I'm committed to doing that again and again and again and again. Fast forward to King David. Fast forward to a man who knows this story like the back of his hand, who's sitting down in a, in a palace and he is utterly alone in his sin and he's saying, my life is in tatters. I have let down a God who has made an eternal covenant with me. I've let down a kingdom of people. Somebody has lost his life because of me and a child is now about to lose his life. Every time I look at Bathsheba and every time she looks at me because she's my new wife, I will remember how I got her into my palace. There's only one place that I know that I can go. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. There's nowhere else in the world I can go. I'm despairing of my very life. Have mercy on me, O God. It's you I trust. I've heard you in your word that you will receive me and you will forgive me, and I'm going to bank my life on that. David has exodus on his mind because he has found in her pages a God who is unlike anything He has dared to hope in. And David finds hope in the Exodus. Well, David also has the book of Exodus on his mind because the steadfast love of this God translates into a new reality for him that changes absolutely everything in his life as a believer. Look at verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's talking about hyssop. Hyssop is a mint-like herb in the middle of the East. It's abundant. It's everywhere. But it plays a very significant role in Exodus and in the ceremonial law to come. Hyssop first appears in Exodus 20, and that's where the people are instructed to slay a lamb at the Passover, dip hyssop in its blood, and use it as a paintbrush to paint their doorposts so that the angel of death will pass over them. Well, then hyssop appears in Exodus 24 because as this covenant is made between Israel and God, many animals are slayed as burnt offerings and Moses once again takes hyssop and he dips it in blood and he sprinkles it on the altar and on the book of the covenant and on the people who are attending to the covenant. And then again and again and again, hyssop plays this role in the Levitical law. It's, it's an herb that you take and you dip in blood and you sprinkle it on people and places and you make it clean. Now David, when he's thinking about this and writing Psalm 51, he understands that there is symbolism in hyssop. It's not just a plant that can carry liquid well. It's not just something that you use to sprink, sprinkle on things for cleaning 
There is a deeper and a fuller cleaning involved in what's taking place here. David is seeing this. If David thought that hyssop in and of itself was everything that could be done, he wouldn't be praying about hyssop to God in Psalm 51. He would have been walking down the road and finding a Levite and saying, would you take some hyssop and literally dip it in some blood and sprinkle it on me because I need its healing power? No, 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 no. David is taking this to the Lord because he understands that there is something spiritually significant. There is a deeper cleaning that he has access to when he understands what God does behind the sprinkling of blood. David's absolutely right. He has prophetic insight, and hyssop is going to appear two times in our New Testament. Then it's going to be gone forever. It appears in John 19 in the crucifixion scene. Jesus is on the cross. He's moments away from his death, and he says, I thirst. And somebody who's attending him takes a sponge and dips it in sour wine and puts it on a hyssop branch. And you can imagine red wine dripping down the hyssop and bringing off sparks of remembrance to the Exodus. And they lift it up to Jesus' mouth and he drinks and he says, it is finished. I mean, that symbolism there is a whole nother sermon in itself. But the second place that hyssop appears is in Hebrews 9, which explains in detail what David suspects to be true. It says these things, this act of taking hyssop and dipping it in blood and sprinkling it on people were symbols. They were copies of heavenly things to teach us there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. This will teach us every time you see an animal die, you will be reminded that forgiveness is costly and there's no such thing as forgiveness without the shedding of blood. When Jesus came, when he absorbed the wrath of God and the weight of God's anger on the cross as he delivered the punishment for sin and he sipped wine from the tip of a hyssop branch, Quite literally, the symbol and the reality came crashing into one another, and the writer to the Hebrews stands up with King David and say, forget goats, forget oxes, forget sheep and their blood and hyssop. How much more, Hebrews 9.14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. If you are a believer in Christ and you read your Old Testament and you find any singular person find even an ounce of relief from their sin, you see them find even an ounce of forgiveness, even an ounce of joy in their salvation like David is doing here. If you see that, You are watching a person who is only looking dimly at the cross. How much more, a thousand times more, are you who stand looking back at the blood of the eternal covenant, see that God again and again, a thousand times over, has done what he's demonstrated he will do. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. These are copies of heavenly things, but that reality has come crashing into the symbol. Friend, you have forgiveness in Christ Jesus. You are cleansed in your conscience from dead works and you now in a new and marvelous and an imaginative way can serve the living God. That's the reality for every New Testament believer. 
And that's the remainder of Psalm 51. That's where he goes in verses 8 through 19. This is a plea for restoration that comes from a purified conscience to serve the living God. This is only possible if we not only believe the gospel to get into the kingdom, but we live with the gospel that keeps us in the kingdom. We understand that God's mercy is wild and free. Just as sin creates those concentric circles of damage to people around us, do you know that the forgiveness of God in the gospel begins to create concentric circles of blessing and restoration to people around us? You're going to read in the second half of this psalm when you take it home this week and read it every single day that a man who was on the brink of a cliff despairing of his very life now in the gospel fully expects to have joy, gladness, a clean heart, a renewed spirit, chances to talk to other people about the gospel and marshal an entire community of Zion to humble themselves before the living God. He has full expectation of those things because he believes and trusts in this gospel. I want you to hear this thought this morning. There is not a single soul on this earth as wretched as King David or thinks they are clean as Simon the Pharisee for whom the Lord cannot forgive and restore and use in his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these truths are too rich to bear. You are free in your forgiveness. You are the one for whom we can throw ourselves on. Lord, I plead with us because I know even as we bow our heads, Satan is beginning to whisper to those of us who do not want to confess our sins to not bother to do it. Father, bring us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And he is whispering to others who are trying to do that right now and confess their sins that your, your forgiveness cannot be as good as you say it is. Lord, I pray that you would shut the enemy's mouth, that we would hear your gospel this morning, that we would take the script of Psalm 51 and rejoice over it in our hearts. And we ask this in the powerful name of your spirit. Amen.